Most of you have probably heard the famous joke originally told in a 1947 comedy by the famous comedian Lou Costello. Marriage is nothing but a three-ring circus. First, there's the engagement ring, then the wedding ring, and then suffering. (laughs) Behind most good jokes, there is an uncomfortable truth. And so it is here. Marriage can be hard. However, we can look at that truth behind this joke from a different angle and find a more profoundly biblical truth. We can see that suffering is going to come whether married or not. And in fact, marriage may be viewed as one of God's gifts to help us endure suffering. In any case, whatever jokes we may find about marriage, and there's plenty of material out there if you're so inclined, The reality of marriage for the Christian is not something to be taken lightly. In fact, all Christians are commanded to honor marriage. Consider Hebrews 13.4. Marriage must be honored among all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled. The New English translation here captures the imperative force of this verse very well. The writer undoubtedly has in mind all Christians all in the church, not particularly all people on the planet, though I'm sure he'd be delighted if all people in a given society actually honored marriage. But his concern is to instruct Christians of their duty in this regard. Thus, all Christians must honor the institution and the reality of marriage. This means Christians who've never married or who haven't yet married, Christians who've been divorced, Christians who are widows or widowers, as well as Christians who are currently married. So the question is, how do we do this? One commentator reflects on the meaning of the word translated honored and presses the point well. The term honored means of exceptional value and indicates that the institution of marriage should be highly prized and individual marriages should be valued and protected at all costs. Nevertheless, I suppose honor and showing value might look different for different folks. For a married man, for example, to honor marriage certainly includes seeking to remain faithful to his wife and vice versa. To honor marriage would include speaking well of one's spouse to others. It might even include commending publicly uh, the value of marriage for society. For single folks, what does honoring marriage look like? Well, it probably would include fighting against the temptation to feel jealousy toward those who are married. But more positively, it would surely include finding ways to help married couples in the church, offering to watch children, to provide an opportunity for a married couple to go out together, praying for particular couples Asking the Lord to strengthen the unity and joy of a married couple, a specific married couple. And whether you feel a strong desire to pursue marriage at some point or not, committing to speak well of the institution of marriage as a gift of God, rather than disparaging it, are all ways single folks can honor marriage. Moreover, Christian widows and widowers might have a unique way of honoring marriage. One of the sweetest, or perhaps bittersweetest, experiences is to hear a widow reminisce about the good times of a marriage that death has parted. 
or consider how widows and widowers may have a unique perspective to share lessons learned to younger couples. Hebrews 13.4 continues with a command that the marriage bed must be kept undefiled. While this certainly gives primary focused direction to married Christians, the among all hangs in the middle, in between the two commands, and probably applies to both commands. Thus, keeping the marriage bed undefiled is a specific way that Christians must honor marriage. And single Christians and married Christians have a role to play in obeying this command. The phrase marriage bed, of course, is a euphemism referring to sexual intimacy between a husband and his wife. That sexual intimacy between a husband and his wife is to be kept undefiled is to work toward maintaining the holiness of sex in marriage. How then do we fulfill this responsibility? One way to keep the marriage, un- marriage bed undefiled is for Christian parents to teach their children wisely about the goodness and power of sexuality as defined in Scripture. That's part of what Solomon is doing in these early chapters of the book of Proverbs. Many of you may recall that we preached an entire sermon series focused on marriage and sexuality in 2020. Those sermons are available online and can be drawn from to help inform what we are to believe about sex, how we are to and are not to engage in sexual activity, and how we can therefore instruct our children. As we worked through that series, we expressed the uh, awkwardness of talking about these things publicly, and I still wrestle with speaking frankly about sex from the scriptures in a mixed crowd like this. I very well may blush by the end of this sermon. You might too. Nevertheless, one unavoidable fact pushes me forward. The Bible speaks openly, yet delicately, about sex. Two other important facts strengthen my conviction that Christians must, must get over our discomfort in talking about sex. First, for those whose children are in public school, their peers are certainly talking about sex. On the bus, in the locker room, on the playground, young kids are talking about sex. I was in elementary school 30 years ago, and it was at school, behind a school building, when a girl exposed herself in front of me. Parents can't afford to be naive about this. And as some of you will recall, because I've shared quite openly about my experience in this area, I was but seven years old when I was first exposed to pornography. And it's much easier to access it today, even if you're not looking for it. The other important fact that strengthens my conviction in this area is that everybody is talking about sex. Not only is it kids in public school, it's in the news, it's in the entertainment, it's in the political arena, it's at the library, and it's even in the stores where we shop. In every place, sex is being talked about, and it's being talked about badly, wrongly, unbiblically. Thus, the church needs to be talking about the goodness and the power of sexuality according to the Scriptures. So what about single Christians who don't have a marriage bed of their own? If you prefer singleness, which I know doesn't apply to all of the single folks listening to my voice this morning, but if you prefer singleness, 
be sure that part of your preference and desire to remain single is not because you believe sex is gross or undesirable. Also, single Christians must commit to pursuing sexual purity, which, also, which includes rejecting lust, abhorring pornography, and abandoning the selfishness of masturbation. This applies to married couples as well. When single Christians indulge in sexual immorality, you are dishonoring marriage and expressing your own sexuality in a way that defiles both you and the institution of marriage as God designed it. For all people, to quote a fellow by the name of Mark Ward, it dishonors sex to take it out of the marriage bed and put it on a plasma screen. For married couples, it takes work and intentionality to keep the marriage bed undefiled, to maintain the purity and holiness of their sexual relationship. To hear more about how a married couple works to keep the marriage bed undefiled, we'll turn to listen to Solomon's instruction of his son in Proverbs chapter 5. But before we turn there, one more word should be said about the context of this command in Hebrews 13, 4. All of the instructions in Hebrews 13 are flowing out of and explaining the, the exhortation from Hebrews 12, 28, where the author insists that we must offer to God acceptable worship. Thus, married Christians should remember that their sexual expression is to be viewed as an act of worship. Not to worship sex, the way our culture seems to, but to worship the God who created sex as a good gift to be enjoyed by His people in marriage. Commentator George Guthrie writes, "...the bed becomes a mini-church in which the two covenant members sacrificially and ecstatically meet one another's needs and offer their bodies as living sacrifices in worship before God." We should remind the world that God created the wonder and fireworks of sex long before the advent of the glossy counterfeit sex sellers of modern culture. Good marriage and good sex do not just happen. They take thought and effort, both born of a selfless willingness to live for God in the details of life over a long period of time. It may also be that the intensity of the struggle increases proportionately the worth of this pleasing sacrifice. Now let's hear Solomon's instruction to his son in Proverbs 5, 15 to 23. Last week, Pastor Ken touched on the first 14 verses of the chapter as a warning reflected in the line of the old song, Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. He then suggested that these verses reflect the personification of woman wickedness, so that the way of wickedness was depicted as a kind of adulteress, seeking to draw Solomon's son and us readers away from lady wisdom. But Pastor Ken also mentioned that this passage is also commonly viewed as a warning about the dangers of real women who might lead Solomon's son away from his future bride. A both-and approach is appropriate here. Thus, I'm going to emphasize that Solomon is here talking about a real marriage to a real woman while recognizing the implications that this teaching could have toward remaining faithful and finding delight in God's wisdom. As I see it here, God's wisdom is being applied to marriage so that Solomon is presenting to his son one 
protective measure to pursue against the temptations other women might present. If I may adapt the joke we opened with, not to reject the truth we reflected on underneath the joke, but to make a different point, a point that Solomon is going to enhance, we may indeed speak of three rings of marriage. First comes the engagement ring, then the wedding ring, and then comes the staggering. As we'll see, stagger is a key word in this passage, though none of our English Bibles translate the word literally, and it's a good kind of staggering we're talking about. Thus, hear the words of Proverbs 5, 15 to 23. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of Yahweh, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. The passage breaks down into three sections. First, let's consider what he says about keeping sex in marriage private, from verses 15 to 17. Solomon introduces a metaphor, the wife as source of water. He refers to his son's future wife as a cistern, then a well, and then a fountain, in verse 18. The water itself represents sexual pleasure. But the emphasis of these first three verses is clear by the repetition of the word your or your own and yourself alone. Sexual pleasure is a private delight to be shared between a husband and his wife alone. Now, of course, Solomon is speaking first and foremost to his son, so he has framed this teaching in male terms. We will be wise to appropriately extend the application of this to the women among us as well as we go along. The command to drink water, then, is a command to enjoy sexual pleasure. I am using the term sexual pleasure precisely and purposely because that is the specific parallel that works best with the imagery. To drink water is to satisfy one's thirst, to experience refreshment. It is likely that we should assume that Solomon is addressing his son before marriage. Thus, this instruction clearly rules out any kind of premarital sexual pleasure for his son. The only proper source of sexual pleasure is one's spouse. Thus, if you don't have a spouse, sexual pleasure is off-limits, unavailable. It is a unique blessing for marriage. Solomon has chosen his, image, his imagery carefully. Cisterns, in particular, were most often privately owned and supplied water only for the family who owned it. Thus, Solomon informs his son that only his wife has the right to provide sexual pleasure to him. Thus, she is not pictured here as an object for him to use. Rather, she is pictured as 
supremely, a supremely valuable source of fulfillment. If he wants sexual pleasure, his wife is the only person on the planet who can rightly supply it. Verse 16 has been variously understood and translated. Most versions understand it to be a question indicating a negative idea. In other words, having your springs scattered abroad in the streets is not desirable. But the King James Version translates it as a parallel command, implying that this is a good thing. The reason for the difference probably has to do with recognizing the shift from singular to plural, in, from singular in verse 15 to plural in verse 16, and struggling to make sense of why he did that. Commentators differ on the underst- how, the, how to understand the reason for this. The simplest explanation is usually the best. It seems that we should follow the imagery consistently. The source of water is the wife. The water itself is sexual pleasure provided by the wife. Thus, having one's sexual pleasure dispersed and made public is not a good thing. In light of the teaching about sexual expression exclusively in marriage earlier in Scripture, Solomon's point is simply to provide a positive-negative contrast. In verse 15, positively, enjoy water from your own water source. In verse 16, negatively, don't share your water. In verse 17, Solomon continues this thought, but this verse is also proved difficult to understand. The plural them is referring back to the streams of water from verse 16. Thus, we're talking about sexual pleasures provided by the wife. Verse 17 says, Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Some students of Scripture have been quick to jump to thinking about the strange woman from earlier in Proverbs and who will be mentioned later in this passage. Thus, many students of Scripture say this is forbidding Solomon's son from pursuing adultery, breaking his marriage covenant by pursuing sexual pleasure from other women. The problem with that understanding is that the word translated strangers here is masculine, not feminine. This is often overlooked, possibly because if it's masculine, then the immediate thought goes to the possibility that Solomon is then pressing his son not to pursue homosexual relationships with other men, which is probably not what he's got on his mind right here. The simplest explanation seems to me to view this as a warning for his son to keep his sexual engagement with his wife completely private. The word strangers refers to men who are foreign to the marriage covenant. In other words, husbands should not be discussing the details of their sexual habits with other men nor should they be in any way sharing their wife with other men. I think this is a very relevant warning, don't you? The privacy of sex in marriage is an important biblical value that needs to be emphasized today. By implication, this not only prohibits casual conversation describing detailed sexual exploits among men or among women, but it also prohibits the involvement of third parties. That is to say... Sex between a husband and his wife is not to be viewed by any other person. Moreover, this rules out the production of and viewing of all forms of pornography, as well as sexual contact displayed in movies and television. While an R-rated movie at the theater or on Netflix might not technically be classed as pornography, many of them do display people engaging in various sexual acts. 
This is not to be recognized as entertainment. This is putting something on display that the Bible says should not ever be on display. I believe this passage also condemns the reading of novels that graphically describe sexual activity, as well as so-called artistic portrayals. Our world has developed plenty of ways to seek to accommodate and excuse sexual deviancy. And I've heard plenty of Christians excuse themselves by saying things like, well, the scene only lasted a minute, or they're not really doing it, it's just acting, or it's just animated, they're not even real people. Sexual intimacy is, well, intimate. It's intended by God to be privately enjoyed between a husband and his wife and no one else. Thus, we don't need to describe it to other people. A husband must not expose his wife to his friends, and vice versa. Now, I will offer one limited caveat to this. Sometimes, there is sexual brokenness in a marriage where outside help is needed. Thus, in order to get help, to turn away from sinful or distorted patterns of sexual engagement in marriage, discussing what has gone on in the bedroom with a counselor or even a doctor may be necessary and good. The issue Solomon is concerned with here is about sexual pleasure. A man who brags about his own sexual prowess to other men is seeking to enhance his own pleasure at the expense of his wife, and he is thereby grossly sinning. I believe this is what verse 17 is primarily prohibiting. Sex between a husband and his wife is to be completely private, and people ought not to expect that they should be able to peek into these private moments whether real or imagined. In verses 18 and 19, we shift into a consideration of blessed sex. I wonder how that phrase strikes you. Solomon is praying for his son's sex life in verse 18. For the married couples, is your sex life a matter of prayer? Solomon sets an important precedent here. Several points need to be made from these verses, and you will be able to see them up on the screen as we progress along. First, follow Solomon's example. Pray for God to bless the intimacy you enjoy in marriage. The two lines should not be read so separately as our, most of our translations imply the and that begins the second line of verse 18, as so often in Hebrew poetry implies, so that. Solomon prays that God would bless his son's fountain so that he might rejoice in his wife. In other words, Solomon asks the Lord to enable his son's wife to satisfy and bring sexual pleasure to his son. This is an appropriate prayer, and it should be prayed for both spouses. It is good and right to ask the Lord to enable a husband to satisfy and bring sexual pleasure to his wife. When God so enables, then the rejoicing can happen. The son is encouraged to rejoice in the wife he will marry when he's young. That would have been the expectation. Solomon is encouraging his son to marry early. More literally, the encouragement is rejoice from the wife of your youth. The from is fitting in with the earlier imagery of the wife as a well of water. Thus, he will rejoice as he draws water from his wife. In other words, he will rejoice as he experiences sexual pleasure from his wife. Solomon prays that his son's wife will be able to quench his son's thirst completely, and the desire should go the other way as well. Wives thirst for water too, you know. 
the beginning of verse 19, Solomon compares his son's future wife to a couple of animals. Let's get distracted momentarily by considering the comparison. The real point comes with the qualities, lovely and graceful. But let's consider the animals for a moment. To what animals does Solomon compare this woman? Most of our English versions have deer and doe. However, the second animal is actually a kind of mountain goat. Let's see those two images on the screen, if you don't mind. Husbands, I'm not sure referring to your wife as an old goat means the same thing today as it did back then. So maybe don't try this at home. But as I said, it's the qualities that we need to highlight. A lovely deer. The word translated lovely is related to the normal Hebrew word for love, but it's a plural noun only used twice in the Old Testament, and it refers to the deepest of affection. So Solomon reminds his son that his wife is to be the exclusive source and object of his deepest affection. Then he describes her further as a graceful mountain goat. Now, We've seen the word graceful multiple times in Proverbs already, usually describing the graceful garland associated with lady wisdom. And as we've looked at before, this is the normal Hebrew word for grace. It is true that out of 70, the 70 occurrences of this word in the Old Testament, there are a handful of occasions where it refers to the outward beauty of something, and it could be used that way here in Proverbs. However, in light of the theological significance of marriage, that it is described in the Bible as a gift of God's grace and in the theological context of God's wisdom being so intimately associated with the fear of the Lord, I'm inclined to see a more theological significance here. Thus, I take this image to mean Solomon wants his son to view his wife as a conduit of God's grace to him. She is a gift from God, and all that she offers him in their marriage should be thought of as ultimately coming from the Lord. Solomon gets more specific and more explicit in the rest of verse 19. Hear these words once more and seek to receive them comfortably. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. This may be an occasion when adapting a quotation from Inigo Montoya in The Princess Bride is appropriate. (laughs) Addressing the men among us in particular, you keep using that verse. I do not think it means what you think it means. (laughs) Periodically, I have heard men refer to this verse to justify their obsession with this particular part of the female anatomy. While Solomon is addressing his son... And it seems on the surface, rather one-sidedly focused on his receiving pleasure from his wife, there is an implied mutuality, even here, that fits with what we find in other passages of Scripture, most notably the Song of Songs and 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5, where we must turn momentarily. But before we go there, let's slow down and make sure that we're not missing the point and misusing this particular verse. First, consider the verb used here. The verb is translated, let fill with delight. Other ways to translate it would be to satisfy thoroughly or to quench your thirst. The word describes an action that results in absolute contentment 
and settled satisfaction. Secondly, note the phrase, at all times. We will expand on this in a few minutes in connection with the word always in the second line. But for now, just observe that his point is that the woman you married when you were young is still to fill you with delight when you are old and when she is old. In other words, Solomon wants his young son to find satisfaction in his wife alone, no matter what age and circumstances do to her body. Third, consider the poetry. The reference to one particular body part is meant to stand for the whole person. Ultimately, Solomon wants his son to be satisfied by his wife, not just by her body parts, by his wife alone. Thus, we return to a major point that is repeated throughout Scripture. Sexual pleasure is only appropriately to be shared between a husband and his wife. Thus, gaining pleasure by looking at or touching Anyone else's sexual body parts is absolutely forbidden. Dating couples must not be looking at or touching each other's sexual body parts. A married man must not seek pleasure for himself by the body of any other woman besides his wife. And a married woman must not seek pleasure for herself by the body of any other man besides her husband. Fourth, consider the parallel contrast from verse 20. Solomon warns his son not to embrace the bosom of an adulteress. This is important to see here because we should recognize that in verse 19, Solomon is not framing this delight in terms of his son merely looking at his wife's breasts. In fact, he seems to be suggesting that his his son must be satisfied with touching her breasts as they connect sexually hers and no one else's. Now, why did I just push us all out to the outer edges of our comfort zone? It's important to be clear about what exactly Solomon's son and thus all godly husbands are to be delighted with here. This particular part of a woman's anatomy has been designed by God to provide her with a kind of sexual pleasure. This truth is reflected in other places in Scripture, though usually in a context of sexual immorality, describing, for example, the sexual pleasure Israel received, metaphorically, from Egypt. We won't turn there, but you can read all about it if you're so inclined in Ezekiel 23. Now, this is also a generality. In other words, every husband needs to learn and discover what his wife prefers, what she experiences as most pleasurable. Thus, I believe Solomon is instructing his son here, here's the point, toward finding delight, being satisfied in giving sexual pleasure to his wife, not simply getting sexual pleasure for himself from his wife. To confirm this point, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that 
Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul wasn't being novel in his requirement of mutual sexual pleasure in marriage. He was being biblical. He was certainly also being countercultural then and now. This passage is probably another case of, you keep using that verse. I do not think it means what you think it means. The most important word in the passage is the word give in verse 3. The instruction is shaped by the obligation of the husband to give sexual pleasure to his wife and also the obligation of the wife to give sexual pleasure to her husband. There is no place for self-centered, selfish sex in the Christian life. Each of us must subordinate the desire to receive pleasure and prioritize the joyful responsibility of giving pleasure. It's verse 4, though, that most often gets misused. The question of authority causes problems. We read the word so, well, authoritatively. (laughs) Paul understood authority, however, in the same way Jesus talked about authority. The leader must serve. In the context of the command to give sexual pleasure to one's spouse, how should we view this authority? Well, it seems to me that Paul is saying that the wife does not have authority over her own body in the sense that she does not have the authority or the right to give sexual pleasure to herself. Instead, the husband has authority over her body, meaning her husband has the authority or the right to give sexual pleasure to her. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body in the sense that he does not have the authority or the right to give sexual pleasure to himself. Instead, the wife has authority over his body, meaning his wife has the authority or the right to give sexual pleasure to him. The husband is obligated to give sexual pleasure to his wife, and the wife is obligated to give sexual pleasure to her husband. This is one implication of the mutual ownership involved in marriage that is reflected in Proverbs 5 and even more clearly in the Song of Songs where the Shulamite woman says, My beloved is mine and I am his. Paul likewise teaches that a husband's body belongs to his wife and her sexual pleasure is just as important as his. Author David White, in his excellent book, God, You, and Sex, writes, The Bible fully celebrates women's sexual desires and commands husbands to take seriously learning the sweet labor of satisfying their wives. This is the centerpiece of married sexuality. It is to always be other-oriented. This is how married sexual expression mirrors the gospel. Selfishness in the marriage bed destroys true intimacy and it destroys the picture of the gospel that is supposed to be painted there. Tim Savage, author of the very good book, No Ordinary Marriage, writes, Nothing ensures sexual fulfillment like a commitment on the part of both partners to make the pleasure of the other their principal aim and focus. When the self-giving love of Christ is replicated in the physical interaction of two believers, it catapults the sexual experience to peaks of fulfillment. When both partners spare no effort to make the physical union fulfilling to the other, 
both receive an explosive measure of delight in return. The glory of sex is maximized when husbands and wives seek sacrificially to empty themselves into the other when they resolve mutually to pursue the highest pleasure of the other. When two people give themselves up in this way, sexual intimacy becomes thrilling beyond words. In verse 5, Paul famously commands married couples not to deprive each other of sexual pleasure. Again, we need to make sure that we hear clearly what Paul is not saying. In no passage of Scripture do we find sex described in terms of need. Instead, it is framed in terms of a gift and a right within marriage. Christian marriage books and teachings have often reinforced a false idea that sexual expression is a biological need, akin to the need for food and water, particularly for men. That is not biologically true, nor is it biblically true. Thus, Paul is not even close to hinting that the reason a wife must not deprive her husband of sexual pleasure permanently is because he has the biological need that must be satisfied or else. And notice that the command goes both ways. The husband must not deprive his wife of sexual pleasure permanently. Even if we grant that sexual expression is a kind of need, it's not in the same category as food and water. And it's also not in the category of, if I don't have sex, I'll have to sin to get my needs met. Another misreading of the last part of verse 5 is reflected here. Paul commands couples who choose to temporarily deprive each other of sexual pleasure to renew their marital intimacy, to return to giving each other sexual pleasure, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Paul does not say, so that you may not sin sexually. He also doesn't say that Satan tempts you because you've been deprived of sexual pleasure by your spouse. We're a couple of steps removed from that. He's saying prolonged deprivation may expose a lack of self-control. Or perhaps he's saying that prolonged deprivation may weaken a person's self-control. In other words, Paul recognizes that for a married couple who have enjoyed regular sexual intimacy in their marriage, taking some prolonged time off from sharing together that way may result in one's desires for sexual pleasure to increase. The person's responsibility in that situation is to exercise self-control, to restrain those desires so that the person doesn't resort to sin in order to satisfy those desires. Secondly, he's saying that in such a state where self-control has been weakened, Satan may move in to provide additional temptation towards sexual sin. Temptations towards sexual sin are always around. Primarily, we are to resist those temptations through the exercise of self-control, a fruit of the Holy Spirit, by the way. But Paul is saying that the regular giving of sexual pleasure to each other provides a way of strengthening self-control, which then enables us to stand against the temptations of Satan. In any case, there is absolutely no justification for a man to command his wife not to deprive him, threatening that if she does, he might go out and sin against her sexually. One more comment is needed here. 
I do not believe that prayer is the only circumstance that would allow for a couple to agree to take some time off from sharing sexual intimacy together. That is to put the emphasis on the wrong part of the sentence. The phrase, may perhaps, by agreement, for a limited time, is to be emphasized. The phrase, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, is, I think, Paul providing an example of one reason a couple might agree to do this. In a book entitled The Great Sex Rescue, author Sheila Ray Gregoire writes, Of course, we have an obligation to each other in marriage when it comes to sex. But having an obligation to make sex a vital part of your marriage does not necessitate that we say yes to every single advance. Sex is not the only need in the marriage relationship, and sometimes other needs must take precedence. The Bible does give us principles that we should always follow. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Focus on serving, not on being served. Look to others' interests and not your own. The Bible even asks men to take care of their wives as they take care of their own bodies, which means that God wants women's physical condition to matter to their husbands as much as their own needs matter to Him. The Bible may have mentioned one specific need, but it does not follow that this particular need must then supersede all others. She then presents a very helpful analogy to consider. She adds, When we say, do not deprive, we're saying someone has a need that has to be fulfilled. But this is not the same thing as saying a person gets to have whatever they want. God made us with a need for food. If your child asks, can I have Cheetos? And you refuse because lunch is in an hour. You are not depriving her of food. The child's need is for a healthy, balanced diet, not to eat anything she wants anytime she wants. The sexual need that God created us with is not for intercourse whenever we want or however we want. It's for a healthy, mutual, fulfilling sex life. And sometimes that means saying no for a variety of reasons. So, back in Proverbs 5 then, I believe Solomon is encouraging his son toward selfless sex in marriage, that he would find his greatest delight, his greatest pleasure in giving pleasure to his wife. Then in the second line of verse 19, we are introduced to the imagery of staggering. Our English translations struggle to bring this over into English. Consider the different ways this word is rendered. The ESV has be intoxicated with a footnote that says, Hebrew, be led astray. The 1984 NIV has be captivated. The NASB has be exhilarated. The CSB has be lost. And the King James Version has, Be thou ravished. The New King James Version finally offers, Be enraptured. Solomon uses this word in verse 19 and verse 20, and then it shows up as the climactic final word of the lesson in verse 23. Those who are married may get the gist in light of their experience of sexual intimacy, but I think it's important to understand the imagery. The best parallel in the Bible that sheds light on the meaning of the word is Isaiah 28, 7. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. It's one of the common effects of drunkenness that seems to be described using this word. Drunkenness often results in a person stumbling or staggering. Thus Solomon wants his son 
to experience freedom in the bedroom with his wife, and he's encouraging him not to pull back from his pleasure. As one writer describes it, deliciously dazed in the ecstasies of lovemaking. The power of human sexuality implies a great potential for intense pleasure for both husbands and wives. When that power is properly disciplined, properly contained in the context of marriage, it can be let loose to roar to full blaze. As Pastor Ray Ortland says, sex is like fire. In the fireplace, it keeps us warm. Outside the fireplace, it burns the house down. Proverbs 5 is saying, keep the fire in the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. Sex is meant to be a fun pursuit for a married couple. It's not always. Because of its great power, it can burn in all the wrong ways. When we've been burned, we are afraid to strike the match again. When there's been abuse in the past, prior to marriage or earlier in the marriage, there can be added difficulties in resuming intimacy. This situation calls for great patience and love from the other spouse. But ideally, as biblical counselor Brad Hambrick says, a healthy sex life is not something a couple works at, discipline, as much as plays toward, delight. Solomon uses the phrase, at all times, and the word always in this verse. We talked a little bit about this in connection with 1 Corinthians 7. Again, I take this to emphasize the all-of-life commitment of marriage. As far as I can tell, the Bible does not dictate a particular frequency for sexual connection in marriage. Brad Hambrick says, a satisfying sex life is not created by frequency. A satisfying sex life creates frequency. If you put your energy into anticipating and satisfying your spouse, then you, both of you, plural, will mutually enjoy your intimacy enough that frequency will take care of itself. Interestingly, Just to consider how serious this all is, in a Puritan church of Boston, Massachusetts, in the late 1600s, a man called James Maddock was excommunicated because he deprived his wife of sexual pleasure for over two years. Let no one ever say the Puritans were all sexual prudes. Nevertheless, for reasons of health, aging, or other greater needs... There should be a willingness to agree to a temporary hiatus of sexual intimacy. These texts must not be twisted into justifications for selfishness in marriage, whether selfishly depriving the other or selfishly demanding from the other. In the last section of the lesson, Solomon turns to what I'm calling foolish sex in verses 20 to 23. He questions why his son would ever consider staggering with a forbidden woman, a woman who is off-limits to him. That is, any woman who is not his wife. The word translated adulteress is literally foreign woman, and as we've seen this in earlier passages, it probably doesn't literally focus on where the woman lives or comes from. Rather, she is foreign in the sense of being out of bounds, off-limits, whether that's because she's married to another man or not. She's not married to him, that's the point. To pursue sexual intimacy with anyone else besides one's spouse is folly because of God's all-seeing eye. God sees what goes on in the privacy of sexual intimacy. When sexual intimacy is enjoyed to its full measure between a husband and his wife, God approves of what he sees. 
But Solomon says God ponders all the paths of people. That is, he examines and brings to judgment the paths of all people. Verse 22 then implies that if the son staggers with anyone besides his wife, seeks sexual pleasure with anyone besides his wife, then he will bear iniquity or guilt. He will become one of the wicked people, and his own guilt will trap him. His sin will tie him up. And as verse 23 says, he will die. Why? Lack of discipline, which reflects what we saw in verse 12, where the fool who gave in to sexual temptation, or, as Pastor Ken suggested, any wicked fool who gives in to sin in general, this fool is depicted as complaining in the face of God's judgment, saying, How I hated discipline! And my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. But on that day, it will be too late. Be careful, little ears, what you hear indeed. At the end of verse 23, we actually see the word folly or foolishness used for the first time in the book of Proverbs. Giving in to sexual temptation is described here as great folly. The only time in the Bible such a phrase is used. Great folly is parallel to lack of discipline. As he dies is parallel to he is led astray. That last phrase, he is led astray, translates the word stagger again. His punishment will match his crime. He has willingly staggered with a forbidden woman, so God will cause him to stagger in death and judgment. The person who indulges sexual sin will stagger to his own eternal destruction. How much better... How much wiser to stagger in the pleasure received from one's spouse. Where does that leave us? Many of us have been married long enough to know that marital intimacy can be hard work, fraught with difficulties, and many of us have experienced brokenness in this area. What hope do we have? Should it surprise us that Jesus cares about our sexuality? If we are to experience holy sexuality as God intended it, whether single or married, we must learn to express our sexuality in Christ. In Christ, the guilt of our sexual brokenness is removed. In Christ, the shame of our sexual sin has been remedied. If all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, as Colossians 2.3 tells us, then all the treasures of wise, godly, holy sexuality are hidden in Christ too. For those of us who are married, we can experience the glories of redeemed sexual intimacy to be truly naked and not ashamed with our spouse. The privacy of sexual intimacy in marriage that Solomon encouraged his son to hold on to does not, of course, exclude God. As we said earlier, God approves of selfless sexual expression in pursuit of maximum pleasure for the spouse. As David White puts it, in Christ, sex is no longer characterized by shame. When God looks at a husband and wife in the midst of their intimate revelry, He rejoices in the holy and honorable activity taking place before Him. In this way, sexuality and marriage should facilitate deeper worship, enabling us to praise God for the gift of our spouse and rejoice in His good gift of sexuality. For everyone, both married and single, both men and women, commentator George Guthrie is surely correct when he writes, our sexuality rumbles as thunder in our bones. 
a power both beautifully dynamic and horrifically damaging in its relational potential, both in relation to people and God. The damage can be incredibly deep. Can we really believe that God's grace is deeper still? Husbands, don't underestimate the role you can play, the ways that God might use you to bring healing to your wife if she's had any kind of sexual brokenness in her past, whether that be harm you caused or caused by someone else. But husbands, to be helpful, you must embrace a completely selfless perspective, progressing at her pace, never rushing, never pushing, and always communicating as clearly as you can that your greatest concern and your greatest desire is her flourishing and her pleasure, her delight. God is not pleased with husbands, especially husbands who claim to be Christians, who treat their wives as sexual objects for their own sexual gratification. Here's what I'm saying as clearly as I can say it. If your wife is bold enough to ask for a temporary hiatus in sexual activity, agree to it. Seek to understand clearly why there is such a desire for a break and commit yourself to praying, asking the Lord to strengthen you both and to strengthen your marriage. I could say the same thing to wives as well. Now, I'm sure some husbands might be freaking out mentally right now, thinking I just gave all the wives in the building permission to withdraw sexually. I assure you all, that's not what I said. Indeed, I've been drawing from Solomon and from Paul this whole time to say exactly the opposite. Any temporary hiatus must have a clear end and goal in view, to come back together, eager to pursue each other's pleasure. Some marriages need a sexual reset. Commit to clear communication and agree that the biblical goal is right there before you both in passages like this. Sexual intimacy can be developed, can be restored, and can be strengthened. God designed our bodies to experience pleasure in this way. Yes, the fall has introduced all manner of distortions and brokenness. Both sin and suffering can wreak havoc on our sexuality. Sometimes we need medical help. Sometimes we need emotional help through counseling. At all times, we need God's grace to enable us to pursue selfless, joyful sexual intimacy in marriage. Let us all prioritize honoring marriage, both our own, and the marriages of our Christian siblings. And let's work to keep the marriage bed undefiled. We might just enjoy it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of marriage, for the gift of sexuality. Thank you for giving us instruction about this in the Scriptures. 